Today on Hearing is Believing. It's more for him. A life of discipline will be an effective life for Jesus. And listen, the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to, it's not any sacrifice at all. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. Would you describe yourself as a disciplined person? Would you? Would you describe yourself as a disciplined person? Personally, if I'm honest, if I'm transparent with you tonight, I would say that I need more discipline in my life. John Maxwell, he says this, great leaders always have self-discipline. That's without exception. One of my favorite or most interesting presidents, I should say, was Theodore Roosevelt. Listen to what Teddy said. The one quality which sets one man apart from another, the key which lifts one to ever aspiration, while others are caught up in the mire of mediocrity. It's not talent, formal education, nor intellectual brightness. It is self-discipline. With self-discipline, all things are possible. Without it, even the simplest goal can seem like an impossible dream. So as a pastor, when I think about self-discipline, and I think about a disciplined life, the first contemporary example that comes to my mind of a pastor who's disciplined or was disciplined was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to the way, and I'm going to read this blog to you very quickly. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon scheduled his week. In 57 years, Charles Spurgeon accomplished three lifetimes of work. Every week, he preached four to ten times. He read six meaty books, revised sermon for publication, lectured, edited a monthly magazine, And in his spare time, he wrote about 150 books in 57 years. Now, some would say, well, he only lived 57 years. There's a reason for that. But anyway, just bear with the article. Spurgeon shepherded the largest Protestant megachurch in the world. And he knew all 6,000 members by name. He directed a theological college, ran an orphanage, and oversaw 66 Christian charities. Spurgeon would often say, I wish it could be said of us that we wasted neither an hour of our time nor an hour of anybody else's time. Spurgeon was also a father, a husband. He never sacrificed his family on the altar of ministry. So the article goes on, how did the Prince of Preachers schedule his week? Here's what Spurgeon's daily organizer looked like, which is taken from his autobiography. Ready? Listen to this. On Monday, wake early, revise the stenographer's transcription of yesterday's sermon, write or dictate letters and personal correspondence. After lunch, complete revision of the first draft of the sermon, then send it to the printer. From 5.30 to 7 p.m., he led the prayer service at the tabernacle He would conduct interviews for membership at the tabernacle, and then he would preach an optional late-night service on Tuesday. He would wake early, revise the second draft of a sermon. At 11 a.m., he would complete the revision of the second draft and send that out to the printer. 
He would write, dictate letters and personal correspondence. Then he'd have lunch. Then he'd research, write books, magazine articles, and other literary work. In the afternoon, he would do pastoral care, counseling at the tabernacle. And in the evening, he would preside over tabernacle societies and charities. On Wednesday, he'd celebrate a much-needed midweek Sabbath. He'd spend time with his wife, Susanna, Charles, and Thomas. And he'd contemplate in garden or read and study. And then he would relax. On Thursday, he would wake early, write, dictate letters, and personal correspondence. He'd begin thinking about selecting a scripture for the evening sermon. On Thursday, he would write, edit books, and other literary projects, complete a final revision of the sermon, then send it to the printer for publication or distribution. And then after dinner, he would begin sermon preparation for the evening service. And from 6 to 7, he'd preach the evening service in the lecture hall of the tabernacle. On Friday, he'd wake early, prepare a lecture on preaching for the students of the pastor's college. From 3 to 5, he'd lecture for two hours at the college on Temple Street. He would interview, mentor students. Afterwards, at 7 p.m., he'd attend a business meeting at the tabernacle. On Saturday, he'd have breakfast. Then he would work with his secretary. Yes, she worked on Saturday. On revising, editing books for publication. He would resolve with secretary any outstanding projects for the week. In the afternoon, he would entertain guests in the garden if the weather was favorable. And at 6 p.m., he would dismiss the guest for dinner. And then he would also say, as he would dismiss his guest, Now, dear friends, I must bid you goodbye and turn you out of this study. You know what a number of chickens I have to scratch for, and I want to give them a good meal tomorrow. From 10 p.m. to 12 a.m., 10 p.m. to 12 a.m., he would prepare Sunday's sermon. He would select the scripture text. He would ask his wife, who was still up at the time, of course, to read the scripture text out loud. Mentally, he would then divide the sermon into natural breaking points as she read the text. And then he would scribble divisions onto a half sheet of paper in purple ink. And on Sunday, he would wake early. He would ride the carriage to the tabernacle. In 15 to 20 minutes, that was about a 15 or 20 minute journey, he would smoke one cigar to the glory of God. He would arrive 30 minutes before the service. And then the worship service began. They'd have a call to worship and announcements, congregational singing from our own hymn book, Voices Only, No Organ. Read scripture text while offering extemporaneous, that means without notes, off the fly, expositions on its content. Begin preaching the sermon. It was about 43 to 45 minutes, no longer. Then he would drink chili vinegar if the throat became irritated. And he would conclude the service, no altar call, but he would have an inquiry room that was available for those who needed to inquire concerning how to begin a relationship with Jesus. In the afternoon on Sunday, he would greet visitors in the pastor's vestry. Late afternoon, he'd travel home to westward on Beulah Hill in Norwood. He would begin his sermon prep for the evening evangelistic sermon, and then he would preach the sermon at the tabernacle. And then he would travel home and retire for the week and begin it all over again. David Livingston, the missionary to Africa, once asked Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, how can you accomplish so much in one day? 
To which Spurgeon replied, You forget, Mr. Livingston, there are two of us that are working. And so as we continue our series this evening, Safe to Shore, we come to principle number nine. And principle number nine is be disciplined. Be disciplined. So I'm going to encourage you tonight, understand, I'm going to encourage you tonight as one who needs discipline <laughs> to be disciplined. And to learn this principle, what I want us to do is I want us to consider 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 16. Hear the word of our Lord. If you put these things before the brothers or sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to uh, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Would you pray with me this evening? Father, we pray now as we look at this text the Holy Spirit would have His work to bring to our minds this Jesus whom we adore so that we may live our lives Spirit-filled in the Son to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do is I want to give you this evening just two major overarching points as we walk through this text. But before we get there, of course, I want us to always remember our place in the context because we won't understand the text unless we understand the text in its context. But remember this, the occasion for the letter to Timothy is to ensure faithful teaching and the continuation of gospel ministry. And so Timothy is the Apostle Paul's son in the faith. And so Timothy has this special commission to guard the good deposit that's entrusted to him. So think about who Timothy is. He's a pastor in the early church. The church is young by the time Timothy is is a pastor in Ephesus. The gospel is spreading there through Paul and then through the church that's developed there. And Timothy is left in Ephesus. So the church is young. And 
he's standing in a position. Timothy is standing in a position to set the standard for faithful Christian ministry. And so if Timothy is setting the standard for faithful Christian ministry, Paul wants to ensure that the principles he employs are in keeping with the faith once delivered. And so false teaching, remember this, is always the danger of the church. And it enters through false teachers. You hear that? False teaching is always the danger of the church. But don't just think false teaching is ethereal, floating around in the sky. It enters through false teachers. That is bubbly personalities. That is individuals that, man, you just, something about them. False teaching enters through false teachers. And false teachers follow a pathway. The pathway is a slow fade. It's a drifting from the truth. I really believe that no one, at least most, we'll say most, because I don't know everyone, most don't say, you know what, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to lead everybody astray. Now, there may be some who do that, but I don't think that most stand up and they say, you know, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to be a heretic. No, it's a slow fade. It's a drifting from the truth. There is a point from which departure happens. And a result is, as what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander, back just one page back, they make shipwreck of their faith. And so Timothy's charge from Paul is to persevere. And his perseverance comes through discipline. But it's discipline, listen, that nourishes through the Word. And through not neglecting the preaching ministry that he has. And that preaching ministry, listen, is not just meaning what happens here. It means what happens in the study. It means what happens when you're off the platform. It means everything, the preaching ministry. Because as we're going to see, as the text shows us, the preaching ministry is tied to the preacher. Just as false teaching is tied to the false teacher. And so Paul's admonition to Timothy is to be disciplined, but discipline yourself through what nourishes, through not neglecting the preaching ministry. And both things require training for godliness. Training for godliness. Look at the text here. That word for train in verse 6. The word for trained is the Greek word where we get our word gymnasium. The Greek word is from the word gumnos, gumnos. Now that word, listen, it literally means naked. It literally means naked. And so the discipline that Paul is calling for, listen, is a stripping down and then a putting back to what is necessary to persevere. A stripping down and a putting back on what is necessary to persevere. And so you say, well, what's necessary for perseverance? Well, we're going to look at that. It's going to be spelled out in these verses. So let's look at it in greater detail. And this is the first point this evening. The first point under uh, the title of Be Disciplined is nourish 
in order to nurture. Be nourished in order to be nurturing. Nourish in order to nurture. Now, we're going to encounter something tonight that we haven't seen in the nine weeks that we've been together. And that's an imperative. You say, what's an imperative? It's a command. It's a command. The first imperative, the first command occurs in the whole letter of Timothy at verse 6 and 7. What's he say? Put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ. Have nothing to do. That's an that's a, uh, imperative. Rather, do this. And so the first imperative, the attention then shifts from instruction, listen, instruction concerning the church to the one instructing the church. You see the difference? We've been talking about how the church should behave, how the church should appoint leaders, how the church should arrange themselves to ensure that they're having uh, sound doctrine. But now the attention shifts from the instruction to the church to the one instructing the church. And remember, as the leader goes, so goes the church. A malnourished leader cannot effectively lead a healthy church. And remember this, malnourishment doesn't necessarily mean that you're not eating. It could mean that you're eating the wrong things. And so, for example, uh, there are several platforms that churches desire to pursue. They become the activist church, the political church, the tribal church. And you say, what's a tribal church? Well, it only allows a certain niche of theological teaching, and it bans all others. And all of those platforms, all of those platforms, they might be necessary. But each one of them, left in and of themselves, is incomplete. Incomplete without the mission to make disciples of King Jesus. That mission to make disciples has to be the top priority. The top priority of a church. The mission, according to Jesus, is to make disciples. Not disciples of a cause, but disciples of his cause. Not disciples of an agenda, but followers of Jesus. And I'll never forget this moment when it came to me. I remember preaching a funeral for a family member. And I had another family member come to me afterwards. And he reminded me of what has to be the top priority in my life. After I preached this funeral of a family member, this other family member sent me a quote from Charles Stanley. And it was a sobering reminder for me. And here's what it said. Your intimacy with God determines the impact of your life. Your intimacy with God determines the impact of your life. The secret to an effective impact on others begins with a close relationship with God. The closer you are with God, the more of an impact you'll have with others. The closer you are with God, the greater impact you'll have with others. Now, let me show this to you in the text. 
Now, we're going to have to go in reverse order, but just look at verse 6. We've got to go in reverse order, but you'll get the point. Look at verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. Follow good doctrine. That's what the Bible says. Follow good doctrine. It literally says, words of the faith and of the doctrine that you have followed. So here's what we have to do. We have to first follow good doctrine. And then what's next? Well, look at the middle of verse 6. Nourish yourself in the words of faith. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And here's an occasion where another translation's better. Nourish yourself. My translation says trained in the words of faith, but that word trained is not the word, the same word trained later. That gumnos word, it means naked. It's not there. The word is nourish. So after you follow good doctrine, you nourish yourself in the words of faith, and then look at what happens in verse 6, right at the beginning. Put these things before others. You see the order? Follow good doctrine. Nourish yourself in the words of faith, and then teach it to others. Follow, nourish, instruct. Follow, nourish, instruct. Now, the danger comes when we try to reverse that order. The danger comes when we try to reverse the order, when we put someone too soon to teach, or the one teaching teaches too soon without first having to follow. And before teaching comes personal nourishment. Before teaching comes personal nourishment. And then after being nourished by the Word, after letting the Word flow over you, after spending intimate time with God through His Word, then from the overflow, teach. From the overflow, teach. And then Paul then goes and he gives an analogy in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, just think about the gym. And in this fitting, remember, and don't lose sight of the, of the, uh, the context. Remember when he was talking about women, how they were to adorn themselves in a certain way, how fitting it is that when he's talking to Timothy, he says, hey, Timothy, don't spend so much time in the gym. It's so contemporary. He says, Timothy, and I had a friend of mine who was a bodybuilder in college, and this was the verse that he wrote. Great brother in Christ. Did his best to encourage me for bodybuilding, but anyway, hopefully I encouraged him for Jesus more than he did for bodybuilding, but anyway, that's another story. He said this. He had this verse. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Why is it? Because godliness, Paul says, holds promise for not just the present life, but also the life to come. And aren't you glad that that's the order that Paul gave? Because oftentimes when we think about godliness, we think about over yonder. But Paul says, no, Timothy. You may go to the gym and you may see some immediate results. But he said, but godliness? It's not just a value yonder. It's a value for the present life. And I think that he has in his mind, when he's talking about the life to come, as well as the present life, I think that Paul has in his mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16? He said, what shall it profit a man 
if he should gain the whole world but lose his own soul? What does it matter if you've gained the whole world, all that the world can offer, and yet you lose your own soul? And remember, the word training is where we get our word gymnasium. And the word gymnasium, just to remind you, and I know that you haven't forgotten it, you're probably just going to remember that from the whole sermon. But the word that we get the word gymnasium is derived from the Greek, which literally means naked. And athletes, back in the Greek days, they would perform literally without hindrance. And in our sensibilities, you and I would say, if they're naked without hindrance, well, that's extreme. They're being very extreme about not having anything to hinder them. But I think that the image there is vivid. The Bible oftentimes uses, uses vivid imagery. And I think that it's intended to be. And what that does, that verse, it reminds me of another passage, Hebrews 12, where Hebrews 12 says, lay aside, strip it down, every weight and sin which so closely clings to you, and run the race of endurance or run the race with endurance, that race that's set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then look at this. Listen to this. I can't just quote that verse without quoting the rest. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have as our ambition set before us this crucified, risen, exalted King seated at the right hand of the Father who is one day going to come again. And anything else that doesn't fit with that vision of this Jesus who is high and exalted and coming, anything else we're told to lay aside. We're told to get rid of it. Matter of fact, listen, I believe this with all of my heart. The more beautiful we see Jesus, the less likely we'll see sin as beautiful. The more lovely we see Jesus, the more ugly even the most attractive of sins will become. So we have this vision ever before us. And so Paul says to Timothy, there are things that are hindering your effectiveness in ministry. And then he says, get rid of them and pursue discipline. And look at what he does here in verse 7. He lays out what could distract Timothy in verse 7. Now, he knows he's writing in a particular context. Verse 7, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, you see the contrast? Instead of having to do with all of those things, wasting your time, train yourself for godliness. And so what about you? Paul, he's, he lays out what could distract Timothy in verse 7. But what is it about you? What's your point of distraction? What's the one thing, or maybe the, the two things, that's hindering you from most effectiveness for Jesus? What is it? Jesus said it this way. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, the Father prunes so that it, it may be, so that it may bear more fruit. So what is it in your life? What is it in my life that needs to be pruned? That needs to be cut away? Listen to what Jesus says next. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so what is it in your life that glorifies God? He just said it. Bearing fruit. And you know what else is is in John 15? There's a promise that whatever it is that's hindering us from being effective for Jesus, He's going to cut it out of our life. He's going to cut it out. Because His utmost desire is for your utmost effectiveness for Him. And so what is it that's hindering your fruitfulness for Jesus? And let me just say this again. Jesus can remove what is hindering you from utmost effectiveness for Him. Listen to what he said. A passage is so often misquoted, but it has directly to do with uh, not bearing fruit. There was an instance where the disciples, they couldn't cast out a demon. And so then Jesus says this, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And then he says this, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, what's he talking about? Literally saying to the mountain, move? Well, maybe, but this is what I think he's talking about. In the context, the disciples were hindered. They couldn't produce fruit. They couldn't glorify God. They couldn't get rid of the demons. And then Jesus comes to them and says, listen, if you have just this much faith, faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you will look at that mountain that's hindering your faithfulness, that's hindering your effectiveness, and you will say, move, and it will move. And then he says, nothing will be impossible for you. And so in other words, the point that Jesus is making, I believe with all my heart, is you have no excuse for a lack of fruitfulness for Jesus. You have no excuse to be everything that God has called you to be. I have no excuse. But it takes discipline. It takes a life of nourishing, staying in the truth of God's Word. Nourishing so that we can be Nurturing. Jesus, He stands ready to help to remove what it is that's hindering your faithfulness, what's hindering your effectiveness. But listen, but you have to come to Him in faith. So you say, well, what does it mean to come to Him in faith? It means looking something like this. It means coming to God and saying, Lord, use me. I'll never forget hearing about Adrian Rogers and his call to ministry. Adrian said he went and knelt down at the 50-yard line of his high school football stadium. And he got his nose in the grass, and he said, Lord, use me. And he didn't think that was humble enough, so he dug a little hole, stuck his nose in the dirt, and he prayed it again. Lord, use me coming to God and asking or coming to Him in faith, realizing that He wants to use you with utmost effectiveness 
It says, Lord, use me. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and, and see if there's anything grievous about me. And then you lead me in the way everlasting. It's humbling yourself. Letting go. Coming to the end of yourself so that you can live a life connected to the vine, connected believing that apart from Him, you can't do anything. Embracing your weakness and in that so coming to Him in, in perfect surrender, coming to Him absolutely as His so that He can use you. You come to Him absolutely so that He can use you utmostly. And a prayer like that prepares you to nurture, nurture others because you're aligning yourself with, what is, what, with His nourishing of you. And if He's the Savior of all people, look at this, and I love this verse 10. If He's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You know what that means? It means that He desires for you to serve Him. And He's going to stop at nothing to walk beside you, to carry you, to be with you, to cause you to bear fruit for Him. That's what He wants. You want to know a prayer that God will answer for you? Lord, use me. You may say, well, I want to be the best preacher. God says, I'm not interested. I want to lead 10 people to Jesus. God's not interested. Lord, I want to glorify you. That's what's God, that, that is what interests God. Because God desires that we bear fruit and so glorify the Father. It's all about Him. We're just simply the conduits by which He pours out His blessings upon the world. And listen, the greater the nourishment, the greater the nurturing. And the more you follow Him, the greater a leader you'll be. The more disciplined you are, the greater effect you'll have for King Jesus. Listen, He is worthy. There is no greater cause than pursuing anyone other than Jesus. Number two, very quickly, number two, be an example of godliness. Be an example of godliness. Interestingly, the requirements for God to use someone is not the most talented, it's not the most skilled, it's the most available. It's the most surrendered. God cares about the heart, and a heart nourished in the Word of God will display itself outwardly with certain characteristics. They'll have, you'll have a certain character about you. And to live a disciplined life, there are certain things that we need to strip away. You say, well, how do we strip them away? Well, all that doesn't line up with uh, what's written in chapter 3, where he says these list of qualifications for overseers, for deacons, and all that doesn't uh, line up with what's written in verse 11. Let no one despise you for your youth, which, by the way, Timothy was about 35 at the time. He says, uh, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and young Timothy, in purity. Until I come, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture 
And here again is a missed translation by the ESV to exhortation. I believe it's better translated to preaching and to teaching. There must be a close connection, Paul is saying, between the life of Timothy and the teaching of Timothy. A close connection between the life of Timothy and the teaching of Timothy. He is authentic in and out of the pulpit. He's the same with two or three as he is with two or three hundred. This attitude is not do as I, as I say, but it's do as I do. And Hebrews, again, in the latter chapter says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of life, uh, the word of God to you. Consider the outcome. Look at the, way, look at the outcome of the way of life. And then it says imitate their faith. And I constantly come back to this. And I hope that I'll bring you with me here. What in my life is worth imitating? What in my life is worth imitating. And anything not worth imitating is to be cast aside. Anything not worth imitating is to be cast aside. But notice this in closing. Timothy is to make as his priority a word-centered ministry. A word-centered ministry. He is to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, preaching and Teaching. You say, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? I believe the difference is just in a difference of intimacy, of the environment. Teaching, I believe, is more private than public in its context. But the ministry of the Word is to be pervasive in Timothy. In other words, the Word for Timothy is central. The Word for Timothy is central. And what is the benefit of a Word-centered ministry? Well, look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. And then here's the benefit. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Oh, what a great burden is upon Timothy to correctly portray Jesus to live the embodied presence of Jesus in this particular moment of pastoring, of proclaiming, of preaching. Not only does it ensure Timothy's salvation, but it leads others like a lighthouse in the darkness of night. His persistence, his discipline, means salvation for himself and, and, and for those who listen. I remember hearing a story about an evangelist from Alabama with the name of Junior Hill. Junior Hill, I remember when I heard Junior Hill, he had Alzheimer's. But Junior Hill would get behind the pulpit and never miss a beat. The Spirit of God would use him. I remember Junior Hill telling a story one time about going away as a traveling evangelist church to church, and he opened his suitcase one night in the, in the room that he was staying in, and he found a note. It was a note from his wife. And Junior told the story. She said, she said some things that I'm not going to tell you guys. But at the bottom line, she wrote this, Junior you make me want to love 
Jesus more. I can think of no greater compliment for a preacher, for a follower of Jesus Christ, than for someone to come to you and say, you make me want to love Jesus more. But loving Jesus more is just it, isn't it? It's the more part. More, more, more for King Jesus. More for Him. If I had a thousand lives to give to Jesus, I'd give them all to Him. It's more for Him. A life of discipline will be an effective life for Jesus. And listen, the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to, it's not any sacrifice at all. Look at verse 10. Paul says, For to this end, the life that's coming, the benefits of that life now, to this end, we toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on, don't miss this, the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. May it be so of me that I live a life of discipline. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. And may it be so of you. Father, as we hear the bells ringing tonight, we're reminded of the life that you've given us to hear those bells. And we want to live our life totally for you. Prick our hearts. Show us what's hindering us. And may we come to you in faith and say, Mountain, get out of my way. I'm going to live all for Jesus. May we sign our name all for Jesus. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.